you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. As God tells us in Luke chapter 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the youngest son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arose, arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called out and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your father has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was hungry, uh, he was angry rather and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks indeed be to God. Liz Loke. Let's put our hands together for Liz. 
What a... In fact, let's keep our, that applause going for the entire band. Uh, well, I can't see anything. Uh, what an amazing uh, job you've done blessing us with, uh, sorry, blessing us with your wonderful voices. I'm kind of starting to lose mine because I got into 10,000 Reasons. What a banger. Uh, I started to just lean into it a bit too much, so now I'm feeling a bit hoarse. But I'm originally going to blame that on Lachlan. Uh, I was really team Lachlan as well. Me and Luke were, were giving it all. And so if I cut out halfway, Chris Dixon, you're up, mate. You've got you to come and finish this up. Uh, I'm so loving church camp. Uh, this is, you know, community mission is kind of my title, and tonight I get the intersection of two amazing things, uh, community, and I get to talk about mission, so I'm like on cloud nine. Uh, Neil this morning beautifully kicked off our teaching uh, this uh, weekend in the book of Ephesians, and he encouraged us, for those who weren't here, that we are a body of believers who are marked by gospel service, gospel depth, and gospel speech. Now, tomorrow, uh, Nick is going to be encouraging us how we as a church might uh, be a church that disciples one another really well. But tonight, as I mentioned, we're going to zoom in on one of the aspects of the Christian life which every single Christian in history has been faced with, and that's this. You've been saved into this amazing body of believers. Now what? What are you going to do with the treasure of the gospel that you've found? Are you going to keep it to yourself? Or are we going to do something with it? Are we going to tell others about it? See, growing up in our faith, it doesn't kind of like drive us away from mission and zeal. It's not a young person's game. It's not an Abbey, just an Abbey game. It is all of our game. I was so encouraged by Abbey's testimony. How good was that? Yeah? So today, I'm going to help to try and drive us toward mission zeal. And to do that, we're actually going to leave Ephesians and sit in the passage that we just had read. Um, so if you've got your Bibles open, please have them open at Luke 15. We're going to be dancing around into Ezekiel a bit. Um, but you've also got a middle spot in your booklets if you want to take notes for the note-takers. And for the note-takers, we're going to be kind of looking at mission at Sydney Hill, Melbourne East, under two headings. First one, gospel clarity and compassion. Second one, gospel courage and community. So let's get into it. Clarity and compassion. Now, at the huge risk of recommending yet another bad movie that everybody goes and sees, I'm actually amazed at how many often when I recommend a movie whilst I'm preaching, a whole bunch of people come and say, oh, I I watched that movie you recommended. And I'm like, no, this is not a recommendation. It's just a story from my catalogue of terrible movies. But one of my favourite movies is this one the movie called The Three Amigos. Uh, Stick your hands up if you've seen The Three Amigos. I can't really see everybody from here. Excellent. Yes. Okay. I'm I'm up with the wrinkles. No offense. But uh, it is a terrible old movie. Uh, It stars Chevy Chase, Martin Short, and Steve Martin. It's this really great, fun, slapstick 80s comedy. We used to watch it all the time as a family. It is just awful. And basically, the premise is, is the photo up there of The Three Amigos? Do we have it? No, no photo, don't worry. So the premise is, is these three washed up uh, Broadway actors, their shtick is to be like uh, Western gunfighters, all right? They they wear these black, really, really tight, you get a lot of close-ups of the caboose, uh, and they're these tight, like, leather outfits with uh, silver sequins and these huge kind of Mexican hats, and they're basically like these singer, dancer, actor, and and they fight crime in their movies, but they're kind of washing up and it's coming to an end. People are going away from Westerns. 
And anyway, uh, what happens in the movie is that this small, oppressed Mexican village sees one of their movies and they misinterpret it as a documentary. And so this small Mexican village says, wow, we need these three amigos to come and help us. So they write them a letter, but they, the letter gets kind of lost in translation. And when it gets to the three amigos, the three amigos think, oh, great, we've got a new movie role. Someone's making an immersive action uh, piece. But what they don't realise is that they're stepping into a really dangerous mission with like real cartel and these guys are singing, dancing, acting, thinking that everybody around them is an actor. And it's so funny because everybody thinks that they're these awesome, bad gun, gunslingers who fear nothing and no one and they think everybody else are actors and extras and there's hidden cameras somewhere. It's so funny. Okay, here's my mega tenuous link to what we're talking about tonight. <laughs> Basically, clarity on mission is of utmost importance. You don't want to be a song and dance actor taking on a cartel. Right? I told you it was tenuous. <laughs> Knowing what we're actually meant to do helps us to clearly do a task well. And that can be muddled a lot when it comes to talking about mission and evangelism. In fact, it can be really dangerous if you have the wrong message. It can be incredibly dangerous if you have the wrong information. It can be incredibly, incredibly dangerous if you have the wrong motivation. I think the best mission that I've ever seen done are by people who are first clear on the gospel and second share the same compassion that the Lord does for the lost. I think we saw that in Abs. And conversely, I think the worst mission and the most dangerous mission can be done by people who have a warped view of the gospel and who have ulterior motives for doing mission. They exist. So before we get stuck into the practical how-tos, like what you should say of doing mission, I just want to first encourage us for most of this time with the gospel from Luke 15. So as I said, please have it with me, uh, open with me. And for some of you, this will be a super familiar passage because it's a really famous passage in the Bible. It's absolutely one of my favourites. It's right up there. Uh, and here's why. It's just radically clear on the gospel message. It is clear. Now, to set the context uh, for the big idea of this passage, read with me uh, Luke 15, verse 1, 1 to 3. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then what actually happens is Jesus goes on to tell three parables, one about a lost sheep, one about a shepherd, leaving the 99 for the one, one about a lost coin and the celebration when it was found, and finally, the parable of the lost son. All these three parables fit together as one. All these three parables are saying the same thing to those people who are listening. They're talking about the love that God has towards sinners, especially when they come back to him, and con uh, condemning the leaders of Israel for not already trying to save God's lost people. That's what these parables are about. Jesus is saying in this section that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, if they had really known God, they would have been calling sinners to repentance just like he was. You see, the love of God, when it's fully understood, when it fully kind of touches your heart, it changes our hearts 
from judgment of other people to utter compassion on other people. In the book of Ezekiel, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus is speaking here, it's written when the Israelites are in exile. Uh, God had the same complaint against the rulers of Israel. Read with me Ezekiel 34, verses 2 to 6. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with no one to search or seek for them. But the Lord in his kindness, in his love, actually has a plan for the lost sheep of Israel. And we continue to read in Ezekiel from, chapter, uh, from verse 11. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I'll bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I'll feed them with good pasture on the mountain heights of Israel, shall they be. See, Jesus is very clear here. In case you're confused, he's very clear here that the religious leaders of the time had not improved on the religious leaders of the past. They had scattered sheep, the coins were lost, the sons were astray, and no one was looking for them. No one was looking for God's people. So that's the context that we're seeing this in. So with that context in mind, let's get into the good news that Jesus presents us in Luke 15. And I'm just going to retell the story. I'm just going to retell it. I'm just going to walk through it. Please feel free to take notes as we go. But please imagine with me this is the situation. There is a well-known family, kind of like a famous family in your small town. Now, this family is known to everybody. His dad's an amazing guy, incredible businessman, uh, very popular. Think politician, but nicer. And he's got, he's got a couple of kids. He's got uh, two sons. Uh, now, in this culture, uh, the oldest son would inherit two-thirds of the father's wealth because that's what, the way it was done. The younger son would inherit about a third. Now, this younger child, he goes up to his dad and he says something pretty horrific. Dad, I kind of wish you were dead. I just want what is owed to me in the will. Just give it to me because, frankly, I don't like you. I don't want a relationship with you. I find that uh, living with you sucks. I just want what you can give me, and then I'm going to go. Now, think about this in this culture. In this culture, that is kind of like potentially a death sentence. The father actually has every right to execute his son right there. At least he would berate him verbally. 
beat him, drive him out of his home. This is like the most insulting thing that you can say to someone in this day and age. But what happens next shocks everyone. See, the response, rather than punishment, the father just does it. He sells a third of what he has. He liquidates some perfectly good assets, and he says, all right, son, here's what you asked for. I would say, you brat. And a few days later, the son gathers all that he has, and he starts to head off to a faraway place. Now, think about, like, somewhere utterly despicable, like Las Vegas, but worse, like, like just disgusting, somewhere like um, Sydney, Yeah, got him. And there he goes off. He goes to Sydney. It's disgusting. Sorry, Sydney lights. I'll see you. He goes off. And there he just does everything that you wish you could do with God not looking. He, like, just goes for that meal to excess. He drinks that drink to excess. He just takes that drug. He just kisses that person. He sleeps with that person. He just does everything that you wish you could do when God wasn't looking. He just gives himself to his folly. And it's not long after this that he just runs out of money because of this lifestyle. But then disaster strikes the city and it becomes hard to get an income. The friends that he made in his partying days are just nowhere to be seen. So there he is, impoverished. He struggles to find a job. And in the end, he has to attach himself to a boss that would bring him utter shame. And he ends up doing this job, which is like the equivalent of like scrubbing the floor of a brothel in the showers with a toothbrush. Like it's just yuck. And then he has this moment where he just realizes he's got no money. He's got no friends. He's got no family. He has lost absolutely everything. And then coming to himself, he realises the mistake he's made. Perhaps he had been wrong about his father all along. Perhaps life wasn't so bad. After all, even the people who worked with his father, who he used to work shoulder to shoulder with, they had something to eat. He realises that life with his father was actually an incredible blessing and a life way worth pursuing compared to the happiness that he could find in the world. So the plan that he hatches is this mixture of audacity and humility. See, he's going to try to approach his father, admit his fault. He's going to beg for some kind of small restoration. Now, it's certainly too much. It's certainly too, too much for him to be asked to be welcomed back as a son. But maybe, maybe he could come back as a hired servant. So there he is. He's driving down the Hume Highway back to the promised land. And he's terrified. You see, it would be perfectly okay if he was seen coming back for anybody to actually kill him at this stage. Such was his offence. There's this chance that this guy is going to be stoned outside the city walls before he even sees his father. But on the way, he's rehearsing his I'm sorry speech. God, I've not only sinned, or Dad, I've not only sinned against you, but against God also. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me just come back as a hired servant. I'll pay my debt back to you. Can you imagine what that feels like? But what happens next is just utterly scandalous. The sun's approaching, his heart's pounding. Who's the first person to see him? You see, his dad didn't have to be summoned. No one had to go get him. He didn't have to be woken up. 
we can assume that he was looking for him. And when his son, when he sees his son, what's his reaction? Is it condemnation? It's compassion. It's grace. He is filled with compassion for his lost son. And he leaves us with no suspense, no ambiguity in the reception that we see. For the joy of the father is so great that he breaks every social norm, every bit of decorum, he just leaves at the floor. He runs to see his younger son. Now this is in the day when the two people who ran were slaves and children. This fancy man is running. He's lowering himself. And when he gets to the son, he just throws his arms around him and just starts kissing him and just starts lavishing upon him every bit of love that he can muster. And the son humbly starts to unfold some request of restoration, but he can only begin to acknowledge his sin before the father interrupts him. There is no question of him being treated like someone for a a period of probation. No. What is it? Cloaks, sandals, rings, bring them, put them on my son. Status, reputation and honour are all returned to this boy with the signs that the dad is just lavishing upon him. And then he just goes over the top, this ultimate experience. He gets the fattened calf and slaughters it. Now, remember, dark ages. You did need a lot of meat back then. And so you got the fattened calf, and you would eat this maybe once in a family's lifetime. Right? This is not something that you'd have even once a year. This is a once-in-a-lifetime meal. And the father slaughters his calf for his son. This was the specialist moment of your life kind of meal. But this story isn't just about the father and the son, is it? Because in verse 25, we start scene two of this story. Because we're introduced to the older brother where we find him dutifully working out in the field. And the contrast between these two sons, it couldn't be starker. While one left the family, squandered everything in shameful ways, the other serves the father obediently. He'd appeared this model son. But when he finds the reason for this celebration, his jealousy, the real reality of his heart could not be hidden. What's he do? He can barely be civil. His bitterness pours out and he describes his work for his father as slaving in verse 29. And he tries to pour cold water on the, on the party, but he says, this son of yours, not my brother, but this son of yours has squandered our wealth on prostitutes. See, viewed from a certain angle, I think all of us would say that his outrage is perfectly understandable. Check out the red carpet which is being rolled out for this younger son. This most irresponsible son. And this older son who's been working diligently has never even got so much as a goat. See, it's very clear that the older brother is meant to show the Pharisees how their muttering about Jesus' ministries actually placed them outside God's program of restoration and forgiveness. But notice this. In verse 31, the father's love for his lost younger son is matched only by his patience for his suddenly lost older brother. There are two streams of grace going here. See, we would expect again, for the father to ignore the son, wait until he comes inside and berate him for his weirdness. 
Who is this son, this older son, to tell the father what to do with this time and money? But instead, the father goes outside, again shaming himself, pleading with him, reminding him that his service, in fact, has never been in vain. And this parable ends with this implicit plea for the older brother to come in, to rejoice in the kindness of his father, to rejoice in the mercy of his father. And we're left with the question, will the older brother come in? See, these three parables are about an incredible truth that God loves sinners with a joyous, passionate love. And not just sinners in the traditional sense. You see, you can repent every day and still be sinning against God. Pharisees and teachers of the law, they repented honestly every day a lot. But their repentance was a transactional repentance. God, I know I'm meant to do this, so I'm doing it so you can love me. It's motivated by a misunderstanding of the love of God. Church, this is gospel clarity and it's something that you really need to grasp before we start going on a mission together. God ultimately doesn't want your good behaviour. He does not want your lip service. He does not want your hardest work on your best day. Church, God wants you. Like, just you. The very person sitting in your chair right now, that is the person that God wants. Do you know that? Like, I forget this. And some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, Pat, I've heard this before, mate, but September was not my month. You have no idea how far I fell. I stuffed up, and I mean like I really, really stuffed up. I feel like I went backwards in my faith. I'm trying to live in the grace of God, but it hasn't been affecting my heart, and I'm worried about if I even have a relationship with Jesus at all. Are you sitting there thinking that? Please notice the description of the Heavenly Father in these parables. Luke, jump up here for a second, mate. It's not a, a distant wizard. He's not wagging his fa- like he's not wagging his finger, standing away from Luke. What do we see in this parable? Do we see perfect confession? No. Do we see perfect living? Absolutely not. Do we see the perfect Christian life? No. We just see a massive hug. You know, like that. That is, that is all we see. We just see this amazing hug from a father to a lost son. It is incredible. No matter how long you've been walking with him, no matter how far away you feel with, from him, he wants you to feel his warm embrace of a hug. God wants you to feel his kisses on your cheek. He wants you to feel the weight of his cloak on your shoulders. He wants you to feel his sandals on your feet. God doesn't want you to feel guilty for not living the perfect life that you're not living. He wants you to feel thankful that you don't have to. See, Jesus says in the parables beforehand, hey, how good is it that that guy found a sheep? Of course he's going to celebrate. Of course he's going to go after and tell people. 
He says, hey, how good is it that that lady found a coin? Of course she's going to celebrate. Of course she's going to tell people. He says, what's more important than a sheep? What's more important than a coin? A son. A child. It's heartbreaking that this child's lost. This child may as well have been dead. Can you even imagine the reception in heaven when a lost child of God comes home like Claire? It would break our freaking eardrums. Like, it is so loud. It's like Joel Creek on sound. It's all the way up. See, this is the heavenly celebration that happened for you. That might be happening for you right now if you're understanding this gospel. Like, it is so loud. God is so loud for you. He is so happy. He's not mad with you that you need to be scared forever. He is overjoyed that you are back safely. Hey, if you haven't turned back to God, do it right now. Like, just take a moment and do it now. Please see with me what is on offer for you in this parable. Freedom. If you're broken, if you're distanced, if you're in a place where you're the own terrible ruler of your own terrible life, please turn to God in repentance. Stop running. Because like the father embarrassed himself by running, the father embarrassed himself by how he was spoken to, with disrespect, he was taken advantage of, what did Jesus do to bring you home? Jesus was beaten, he was mocked, he was scorned, he was naked, he was hung up on a cross, he was tortured and he was murdered for what? Why did the father shame himself? He shamed himself for the love of his sons. Why did Jesus hang on that cross? We're told in scripture, for the love of the world, for the love of those who trust him, for the love of every single person in this room, for the love of you. So the question for us to think about when we're growing up in our faith is this, do we love the same things that our Heavenly Father loves? Do we have compassion on those who don't love God, who don't have a relationship with God? Or are we like the Pharisees of old and of new who are hardening our hearts towards those who don't have a relationship with Jesus? We should be actively pursuing them, working as Jesus' deputy shepherd, seeking to bring the lost sheep back into the folds. Not like the Pharisees and teachers of the law who hoarded the relationship with God for themselves. Our call that we get in Scripture is to go and tell the nations of this relationship that we have. So that's gospel clarity and that's gospel compassion. Gospel clarity in what we're communicating to our friends and family So we're not the three amigos. We're not in a real fight battle with a powerless song and dance. Rather, we want to be fighting a real battle for people's souls with the power of the true gospel, that salvation is a free gift of grace for you and for them. Like, that's the true gospel. And we want to have gospel compassion. We want to share God's heart for the broken by the distance, for the distance of his his children. See, his greatest joy is seeing his children come home. We should have the same joy as he does. So do we have that clarity? Do we have that compassion? Because if we do, we're going to have an awesome time doing mission together. If we don't, it's going to be pretty hard. So how do we actually do this? How do we actually play our part in uniting people with Jesus? 
I think it's with two things, with courage, voice broker then, and community. So let's turn to our last point, courage and community. Now, just because we're all in a really upbeat mood, I'm going to, you know, bring it in even damper. Have you ever thought that lots and lots and lots and lots of people have died for their faith in Jesus so that you can be sitting in this very room? Like, really think about it. Bibles on our laps, written in languages that we can understand. I never, ever used to think about this. And then I read this amazing uh, martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity, these two incredible women. One a slave girl, one a rich woman. They're actually the first recorded female martyrs in church history. Um, if you want to ruin your day, read this. Um, they were put in the arena. They were gored to death by wild beasts just a couple of days after they gave birth. Like, it's really full on. And all they had to do, all they had to do was renounce Jesus as their Lord and Saviour and accept Caesar as their king. They gave up their status. Get this. They gave up their relationship with their newborn infants. Every parent, your heart should be breaking. They gave up their marriages. They gave up their hopes for their earthly futures. Why? They gave this up so they could cling to their faith, cling to their Lord, so they could witness to the people around them that this faith that they had, it wasn't a fad. It wasn't a fan club. It wasn't a part of their life they could compromise on. It was everything to them. And I say this, I truly say this not to make us feel bad. I really do encourage you to go read their story. Like, it will change your mood, but it is amazing at the end. I say this to simply say this. The good news that we have, that we've just unpacked, the gospel from Luke 15, wasn't handed down in neat little church communities, structures and programs. It was handed down because the historical body of believers like you and I clung to it. We lived lives shaped by it and we told people about it so they could believe in it too. Like that's actually how the gospel was passed on. But it's not that simple. Telling people is really hard. It's really scary. So how do we do it? All right, here's the application. Might I suggest just two things? And it's been done since the dawn of our faith. Courage and community. Courage and community. Because although we're not faced with the same like coliseum of danger that our brothers and sisters in the past have been faced with, it doesn't mean we don't have nothing to lose. Like, we have a lot to lose. There's relationships, reputations, jobs, um, you name it, we can lose it. Yet, if we're going to see our friends, our family, our co-workers come to saving faith in Jesus, be reunited with the Father, be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, we need to step up courageously, but we need not step up alone. Now, there's so much that we could kind of say to make it practically happen, but in a room full of this size, I just want to leave us with two plausible kind of application points. So this is my plan for mission at City on a Hill, City on a Hill East. First one, merge your circles and become great friends. I've said this before. It's an idea from Sam Chan, Rebecca McLaughlin and Tim Keller, three incredible evangelists and also late evangelists. Basically, the premise is this. Make friends with their friends. Introduce them to your friends. Get your Christian friends and your non-Christian friends at the same table. It's a really simple idea. It's pretty hard to share Jesus with your friends if you're not hanging out with your friends. You see, 
also, we don't do mission alone. We have great connections. You have great friendships here in this very room. That's what this whole weekend is about, that you and I can get to know each other deeper so we can then go on mission together. Now, I want to stress that when you're evangelizing to your friends, you don't want to view your friends as projects. But we have this opportunity to be amazing, amazing friends to our friends. Like, you really care about them. You really have compassion for them. You really have a lot of answers for them. Own it. Be a great friend to your non-Christian friends. Listen well. Ask good questions. Genuinely love people in their wins and losses. Share your own hardships with them. There is nothing worse than people thinking that you've got it all together. I know a lot of you are absolute basket cases. And I really can, your friends should know that too. But they should also know how you deal with that. Pray with them. Encourage them. Share your life with them. Go to their stuff regularly. Our city's so lonely. It's always said that you can actually feel the loneliest in the biggest city that you're in. So get brunch together, eat meals together, laugh together, cry together, talk together, cook together, walk the dog together, do things together. See, if you want to invite them to explain Christianity in February, kind of do the professional side of it, which is awesome. It's like a step in their evangelism journey, I'm sure. You're not going to be able to do that with a whole bunch of relationship capital unless you, they trust you and you have gone to their stuff. Go to their stuff so they'll come to your stuff. So that's the first one. Secondly, last one, use your meals for mission. Use your meals for mission. You have 21 of them a week. And Tim Chester helpfully highlights this. Jesus didn't run projects. He didn't establish ministries. He didn't create programs. He didn't put on events. He ate meals. If you routinely share meals and you have a passion for Jesus, then you're doing mission. Like it's going to happen. It's not the meals that save people. It's you or your faith. People are saved through the gospel message. But meals create a natural a, a, a space for that gospel message to naturally come out in a context that resonates powerfully with what you're saying in something like your own home. One of the most intentional missional phrases you can say is this. Ready? This is like my best missional phrase. Chris, want to come for dinner? Like, is that... Well, I'm busy. It's that easy. <laughs> Awkward. Didn't think you'd say yes. What do I do? It's a lost art, but it's a powerful statement. Would you like to come for dinner? Once a fortnight, once a month, have your mates over for dinner. It's easy to do. Because it like connects people with the faith that we have. It connects us. It turns strangers into friends. It's a, we're able to turn our Christian friends and our non-Christian friends into friends. It's an amazing way to increase the plausibility circle of your friends. So church, that's simply it. Those are my two missional tips for helping us tackle mission in Melbourne's East. First, have gospel clarity and compassion. And then practically, merge your circles, be great friends, use your meals for mission. And as I wrap up, I'm going to invite the band up. I just want to encourage us with one last point. This is a big one. How cool is it that God wants to use you for this mission? It is truly amazing. How cool is it that God wants to use this group of people to spread the good news of Jesus in Melbourne's East. Take a look at you. Take a look around us right now. Like, this is it. Like, seriously, this is it. 
this is all of us. I might say we're a pretty nice-looking group of people. We're a pretty average-looking group of people, aren't we? Like, hands up if you've ever written a book like Tim Keller. No? Written, written. I saw a hand go up, thought, wow, we got one. <laughs> hands up if you've ever soul saved as many souls as someone like C.S. Lewis. No. Can anybody here argue for the faith like Rebecca McLaughlin? Does anybody have that wit, that poise, that testimony? Tim Keller's dead. C.S. Lewis is dead. Rebecca McLaughlin lives in America. This is it. Man, this is it. You panicking? Because Jesus isn't panicking. Do you think he's sitting there going, for this batch sucks? <laughs> you know, he's not sitting there going, the last generation, they were average, but this generation is as dumb as it gets. Like, we have battery, we have signs on our battery saying, don't drink the liquid. Like, do we need that? How am I supposed to do mission with this lot at Melbourne's East? See, Jesus isn't thinking that. He's looking at you and he's thinking, hey, this is your moment for mission. You're up. This is who the Lord has selected and he knows us better than we know ourselves. This group of people knows the culture they're in. We know the culture we're in. We're saturated with this culture. See, we live in this city. We work in this city. We play in this city. Some of you went to school and university in this city. We've all made friends in this city. It's up to us. We can read the grace. We can read and be in awe about missions in the past. But these people would be useless in our context. We are the people in the context that we're in. This is it. God has selected you for this moment. This is your moment. Look to the person next to you. That is your best mission partner on the planet that you can probably get. Let's use this moment, let's use our dinner tables for radical conversations. I just love it. I just think it's so cool. Like, does that fill you with dread? Because if it does, look at the witness of Scripture, look at the witness of history, and see God uses every single type of person to spread His love across the world. You see, God uses kings and queens. He uses orphans and widows. He uses murderers, shepherds boys, slave girls, fishermen, prostitutes, tax collectors. He uses the smartest in the room and the shyest. God uses everyone. And I'm convinced that He hasn't just changed His tactic on us. He hasn't changed His tactic all of a sudden in the age we're in. He's got you right where He wants you because He knows more about you and your situation than you do. Take the testimony of Abby and Claire that we heard earlier. How awesome that Abby and her friend didn't give up on prayer for Claire. They were courageous, they were bold, and eventually through the witness of their lives, they had a great friendship with Claire and she accepted the invitation to start exploring Christianity that they put out to her. And through that invitation, Claire has come to know and have a personal relationship with the risen Jesus. She has felt that warm embrace, 
the angels are going off for her right now. How cool is that? Let's pray that the Lord does it again with us. Pray with me. Lord, we pray that we see more people saved in our midst. Please save those who we love. Lord, we pray that you use this body of believers to save many people from their sin into right relationship with you. Lord, we pray that you use us very ordinary people to do very extraordinary things in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Lord, we love you. We are on mission for you. Please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, equip us to do this mission. Fill us with the words to say. Give us the homes to open. Give us the relationships to connect with. Father, change our hearts for what breaks yours. Help us to love people with all of our hearts. Not to see people as projects, but to see people as lost sheep. It's in your mighty Son's powerful, saving name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.